This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and an author, and my new book is called Find Your Happy at Work. Today, on our show called Jazzed About Work, we'll be talking about how to create the kind of organizational culture that helps people become more jazzed at work. Our guest, Gerald Leonard, has two degrees in music, and he's an accomplished bass player. He also is an IT project management consultant, and he has earned a long list of leadership credentials. And he drew on a bunch of his skills in writing his insightful and entertaining book, Workplace Jazz. Gerald will explain how creating successful projects and high-performing teams is a lot like building a great jazz ensemble. He'll describe how we can learn from the way world-class musicians develop their skills and how they collaborate with colleagues. And Gerald will use the jazz metaphor to help us envision how each of us can contribute to a supportive and effective team culture. Gerald, I'm so happy you're here today, and I'm really looking forward to digging into your intriguing book, Workplace Jazz. I I really enjoyed it. But here at Jazzed About Work, we are always interested in hearing our guest career stories, and yours is kind of intriguing because you um, combine a lot of different things. Could could you start by telling us a bit about your career path and, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Beverly. I'm really happy to be here and excited about being uh, on uh, Jazzed About Work. So my career path started um, in uh, attending college for music. And so I started off as a music major, and from there I went to at Central State University, played in the symphony orchestra as well as playing jazz. So I always played classical and jazz uh, growing up, playing a lot of different other types of music, and then went to Cincinnati Conservatory and did my master's. Finished my master's and went to New York, studied at Juilliard in Manhattan School of Music with a gentleman named David Walter for a year in professional studies. Um, he had taught my teacher, um, who was a... Uh, basses and composer for the Cincinnati Symphony. And um, I did that for a number of years. And then I, I did some ministry work and got married. And I decided I really didn't want to be on the road um, traveling. And I wanted to be home. I want because that's how I grew up. My dad was always there for me. And so I felt like I owed that to my children. And so I decided to switch careers and I got into IT. And in fact, I got into IT at a time where if you could spell IT, you could get in. And so, mm-hmm. and so, oh, that's but, great. Good <laughs> timing. I, exactly, exactly. But what I realized was that all of that music training made picking up the computer, and it didn't, it didn't all dawn on me at once, but over time, it made picking up the computer like picking up another instrument. And a lot of the, you know, the philosophy, the, a lot of the math, a lot of the logic behind computers is similar to. The, the logic and things that you go through in development as a musician. Um, and there's more I can talk about on that angle. But 
from there, I did. I decided I didn't want to go back and get another master's, so I did the certification route, and I just did every certification I could take: the Microsoft certifications, the PMI certifications for project management. And I'm driving along one day and thinking, what am I really good at? And I realized that I was always good at uh, corralling chaos, or controlling, or putting things together and organizing things. And so I kind of ventured, focused on project management. And that led me to where I'm at today, where I've been able to continually keep playing music uh, professionally and at the same time work as a consultant or a project manager, a program manager, a portfolio manager. And I began to see a correlation between the two worlds and how they came together. And um, then I started doing some speaking and through networks, mentors, coaches, helped me kind of develop a lot of these ideas to help me crystallize a lot of the things that I wrote about and talk about in Workplace Jazz. Well, as I said, I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I think I learned some things about music and I saw some things about leadership that I knew, but I didn't have sometimes a good way of explaining. And I think your book really does with its wonderful uh, linkage between a jazz group and a, a work group. But I, I've got to ask you a, a question first. The, uh, the title of your book, it first made me hesitate. Um, the title, full title is Workplace Jazz, How to Improvise, Nine Steps to Creating High-Performing Agile Project Teams. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, Agile is a very specific um uh, structure and uh, approach to management. It might be too narrow for this, but I, I so love the idea of your book that I read it anyway. And I thought, wow, this is perfect for our listeners. You don't have to be um, an agile leader or an agile fan to get the book. Is, is that correct? And who were you talking to when you wrote this book? Okay. So you are, you're delving correct on that. Um, initially, when I wrote the book, I was speaking to my, I guess my target audience really are project managers um, and leaders really uh, of project managers who who are responsible for executing large uh, portfolios or budgets uh, because that's a lot of the work that's being done in the, in the workforce today is project related productivity type of work. But it's also really focused on developing teams, but also addressing culture and also addressing the the neuroscience behind some of these attributes and so it was it was a narrow focus but you know it, it also uh, expands out into a much wider audience because if you've listened to music or gone to a concert you get the principles in the book you really do I like the way the book operates on a few levels like I said I learned some things about music and I do want you to talk a bit about the neuroscience of music, but I also fell in love with the metaphor of a jazz group and the way people support each other. So I, I think it's so interesting how you use music in, in different kind of ways. But but let's start uh, a little bit about um, the neuroscience of music and what it does to your brain and how combining uh fields like yours might be brilliant. Well, you know, it was interesting because as I wrote the book and did my research, <laughs> I learned a lot more about what music was doing to my brain. 
And and honestly, I'll have to tell you this story, um, a short story here. And it was in 2018, I had a major bout with vertigo. And it wasn't the normal vertigo that, that you experience in, you know, the room's dizzy, you go lay down, you go to the doctor, they do some therapy on you in a day or two, you're done. This mm-hmm. put me in the hospital for a day and a half. I had to be taken to the hospital by an ambulance. They had to give me some medication to make it stop. And then when I came home, I had to use a walker because it wiped out what's called the vestibular system in my brain. And I Ooh. lost the ability to balance. I couldn't walk except for holding onto the walker. So I spent a week in bed laying there, couldn't look at my laptop, couldn't look. I had to turn the television on, but I couldn't listen to it. I just, I just had to have some noise because I had a ringing in my ear. I felt like I had a concussion. It was horrible. And I'm laying there, and this happened six weeks before I'm to deliver a TEDx talk, the talk, my TEDx talk that I actually delivered. And here's how I delivered it. I'm sitting there thinking about music and this talk, and I remember one of the uh, quotes I used from one of the books that referenced about neuroscience and how if there's damage to the brain and you're a musician or you play music or you are involved with music, the brain oscillates at a, at a frequency and starts working around the damaged areas. So as soon as I could get up, I started playing my bass. And within a couple of days, I could walk down the hall just holding onto the walls. Within a week, wow. I could walk outside Within two weeks, I could start slowly walking my block and coming back to the house, very gated. Um, but by the time I walked into my doctor's office at three weeks, I um, didn't need any assistance. And then three weeks later, I was on stage in Delaware delivering my TEDx talk. So the neuroscience of music is one. Music has just an amazing power of what it does to our brains. But here's the other thing that I learned in my research, reading a, uh, a research through a book called um, the, the the Whole Brain, um, and 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 in that book, it, it it referenced how musicians develop whole brain integration because of their ability to play music. And what whole brain integration is is the ability for the right and left hemisphere to work simultaneously. Uh, communicating through the corpus callosum, which is that fibers that connect the right and left hemisphere together, it works simultaneously so that you can see the big picture and work in the details at the same time. And I recently wrote an article for uh, a um, a byline article for a major um, store that's being published uh, to their 14 million readers, and it and I highlighted two people who had whole brain integration, and that was Henry Ford and Winston Churchill. Henry Ford was an avid and trained classical violinist. And Winston Churchill was a prolific writer. But both of them had this concept of whole brain integration, and they were able to navigate very difficult challenges in world times because they could see the big picture and manage the details. Well, I was, um, as you were talking, that's so exciting. And I was just thinking, oh, what if you can't play music, you just listen? But it sounds as though uh, what you're saying, and I have read this too, that creative activity, it could be um, painting um, like Churchill did or writing. Um, it could be um, a variety of kinds of uh, creative endeavors. If you can immerse yourself in them the way you do uh, when you're playing music, that's, that's good for your brain, right? 
Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And the only other way that you can develop this, the whole brain integration, besides what you just spoke of, is through long periods of meditation. If you meditate with a mantra over a long period of time, I mean years, you can develop whole brain integration. But if you pick up an instrument or you pick up some form of artistic endeavor, and just even as a and even as a novice or even as an amateur, begin to practice that art or that that um, that that skill, you will develop a form of whole brain integration where your right and left brain begins to operate, and it gives you the ability to see the big picture, but also work in the details. That's really interesting, and I. I think it's a good reminder that uh, when you're frustrated with your work or your career or things aren't going well, you need a fresh perspective. And a great way to do that is to step step away for a bit. Uh, exactly. Immerse yourself in nature. That's another way you could have immersion or or med- have a meditation intensive week or, or um, do something creative. Well, I want to go back to a word you just said because it is um, – an important word that we all can um, we all need to do, and we can learn from musicians, and that's practice, right? Yes. One of your favorite uh, suggestions, one of my favorite of your suggestions, is to learn from musicians and the way they practice, practice, practice. Can can you uh, talk a bit about the kind, the nature of of practice um, that musicians? have right and so musicians that are that are in a growth mindset uh and not every musician does this but musicians in a growth mindset who constantly want to get better do something called deliberate practice and you know it's it's somewhat like taking a lesson from someone where you you go into the lesson and they give you something new and challenging and push you a little bit above what you're capable of doing so then your time of practicing has to be focused on um, mastering or conquering that that skill that you're not just a little bit above what you're capable of. Well, even as professionals, if you keep doing that, it's called it's it's really called deliberate practice. And here's how that helped me because I had learned that skill as a musician, you know, in college and in high school, and just playing music. When I switched careers, I would practice the computer. And what I mean by that is I read everything I could get my hands onto. I went to every webinar I went, I could, I could learn. Um, I would uh, practice coding. I would practice configuring. I would practice using it. And by using that same principle of deliberate practice, I was able to advance in my skill set. Even when I got into the project management, I did the same thing with some of the tools that are very sophisticated and project-oriented type tools, but because I would practice where other people would just kind of go to work and figure it out on the job, I would literally spend time practicing outside of work like if I was a musician, because that's what I had learned to do. And it allowed me to catapult myself in my career uh, much further to becoming the president of the Microsoft Project User Group for nine years in the D.C. Baltimore area, to uh, just doing a lot of great things for major companies that I would not have been able to do in a short period of time if I hadn't practiced. So deliberate practice can not only be used, that concept for music, it can be used in anything that you do, in, in writing, art, 
whatever you speaking, whatever you decide to do, you can develop a plan and deliberately practice that skill. A great way to do that, I found um, with clients who maybe have a job they like, but they've been doing it a long time and it's very repetitive. They write the same kind of newsletters or memos or create the same kind of projects. And they're starting to get bored and they don't want to really change jobs, but they're just so bored with what they're doing. One of the ways I've seen them get past that is to try to take that idea of practice and every time they do something, say, this time I'm going to make it more interesting because I'm going to find a way to make it better. And right. making it better is much more fun than just doing the same old thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Even with writing, because, you know, as I wrote this book, one of the things that I learned from um, a group called AWAI, which is American Artists and Writers and um, uh, Inc., they taught a concept called copy work, and I had never heard of it. And it's it's pretty simple. It's basically taking a really good writer, let's say a Malcolm Gladwell or a Dickerson or someone that you really admire their writing style, and you simply spend time every day copying exactly how they wrote what they wrote. And you're not going to publish it or anything. You're just simply practicing and you're kind of immersing yourself into their mindset, into their writing. And it's almost like a form of mentoring. Well, when I wrote my book, I would spend 30 minutes practicing writing some of the best writers that I really like, like a Malcolm Gladwell or whoever, so that when I had to, when I went to start working on the book and writing, it, it allowed the information to kind of flow a lot more naturally from me because I had kind of warmed myself up, like, you know, playing scales and music. Um, but it also kept it interesting and also made it flow really nicely because now I was kind of reaching outside of myself to get inspiration for ways to communicate or ways to phrase things that I hadn't thought about before. So you're trying to develop a sense of the writer's voice so that yes. you could sound uh, like him while writing something quite different. Well, it's almost like you're, you know, you're Benjamin... looking at his voice, but you're also taking in a lot of the other attributes non unconsciously of his writing style by by practicing, you know, writing out the way he would write or she would write, you really kind of in a, uh, in a way of kind of like osmosis, take in a lot of the things that the writer is communicating on the page that you wouldn't normally pick up just from reading. It makes a lot of sense. And um, in, in the his memoirs, uh, Benjamin Franklin described as a kid doing that, borrowing exactly. books from the great writers and trying to practice writing like them and rewriting what they were saying. And uh, he recommended it. So that's the uh, that was a great thing to practice. Yes. Well, one of the things that um, the book talks about, it does talk about groups, but it talks um, um, a lot about, oh, individual values, I guess, would be a way mm -hmm. to say it. And the um, the way you described uh, a great jazz group is that 
people were trying hard. They're trying to do their best, but not just for themselves. They're trying to collaborate. They're trying to um, get what the other one is suggesting and support them and things like that. That was that's a really important thing to know how to do, isn't it? And tell it really me more is. about how it works in a real jazz ensemble. Okay, so so basically, you know, if you if you're you have a band or you're pulling a group together. Uh, everyone's kind of coming in with a baseline. And that baseline is that they're being brought in because they have shown a certain level of proficiency on their instrument. In other words, they've been practicing individually. So when musicians come together, they're good at what they do, but the conductor or the band leader has to, one, share the vision of the performance, whether it's a Broadway show, whether it's a jazz concert, whether it's a musical or whatever they're performing, they have to understand what's the big picture. And with with it being jazz, you kind of have a roadmap of the music. And then there's times where someone will solo, like the, the, the piano player will solo and, and give his interpretation of the melody or the saxophone player or the guitarist or the bassist or whoever. And in those times, everyone else is following the roadmap but then they really have to listen. So a big part of it is that you're coming in with a baseline of, I have these skills. Now I need to put that behind me and focus on the big picture and and really intensely listening. And so as a musician, you learn to listen, not to just, am I playing the right notes, but where's the other guy going? What's his intent? Is he playing fast right now? Is he playing slow? Is he trying to build a emotional climax, or is he playing softly? Uh, because you have to go that you have to go there with them, um, and it's just like playing with a singer. If the singer's you know taking it up and and again building up a climax or, or creating a, a long string of melodies or making it smoother, you have to play in that style. And the only way you can do that is forgetting about what you've been practicing and focus on the big picture of the music, the roadmap, but then at the same time, intentionally listening, very actively listening to the other person and in imitating or mimicking where they're going. And what starts to happen is that you, you begin to predict where they're going because you've gotten to know them or there's this kind of emotional connection that begins to happen. That's really neat. You have to experience it. And I've actually, you can actually experience it even on a business team. And I'll share that. I do think that um, I know what you're talking about in a context of work, or it doesn't even have to be your job. It can be putting on a big event for a nonprofit or something like that, where you've got a great team and you respect each other and everybody has their jobs, but it comes down to the event or the project. And Everybody is just doing whatever they can to help each other. That feeling of kind of group flow yes. is, it's not common, but when you can get there, it is so fun. And exactly. So I'm guessing that because you knew that sense um, from music, you were able to envision how great uh, project teams should be working together. Well, not uh, just envision, I experienced other- it. And here's what I mean, is that sometimes in my career, I would have like a performance. So at, in the evening or, or whatever, or weekends, I'm, I'm playing music or doing some shows. And then I'm consulting or working with a project team with a client. 
And I started noticing that, hey, this project team is like, like playing with the band I just played with or playing the concert I just played where everyone's really good at what they do, but we all understand the big picture and we're coming in and we're supporting, we're listening, we're, we're open to feedback, we're, we're um, really paying attention to, everyone, to, to who's leading and to what the, the, the company needs and what the sponsor needs and we're, we're connecting and we, we get into that flow and it's not about any one person's specific skills, it's about the collective whole of what we're all bringing together. And it, it's partly um, holding on to positivity about the whole yes. team and what you're already always doing. Uh, one of the chapters I particularly liked is the one about aspiration. Would Would you tell us about um, what you wrote in that chapter and uh, what is aspiration? Why does it matter so much? Right. So, for, so aspiration is very different than inspiration. Inspiration is I'm in, I'm inspired to do something. I'm encouraged. Aspiration is I want to do something that's bigger than I am right now, which requires me to grow. And so, when I develop an aspiration to become aspirational, um, to to speak like a Winston Churchill or to write like a Malcolm Gladwell, that requires me to dig a little bit deeper in myself and to also find role models to look at, to mimic. And, you know, we, one of the things we have in our brains, and I talk about it in other places in the book, is something called mirror neurons. And when we're aspirational and we have a model of where we're trying to grow, we can either through reading, through watching videos, through meeting that person, um, we can use what's called the mirror neurons, which is our ability to imitate or mimic what the other person is doing to the point, and it's not, it's not a matter of faking it till you make it, but it is a matter of imitating or acting as if you've achieved that particular uh, goal or that, that style or that lifestyle that you're going after. But aspirational thinking is thinking much bigger than where you are right now, and it pulls you to become better. So for a leader of a team, if they want people to be fully engaged and doing their best and really trying hard, the leader starts by doing those things Correct. and working hard at it. And the team members, without even being conscious of it, might pick up from that modeling. Right. They right? will. Is that- that, it, it, that's exactly it. And, um, and you know, one of the great companies right now that I have admired is uh, is Microsoft. And the CEO, Satya Nadella, grew up with inside of Microsoft as a technical engineer. But the thing I really like about him, I listened to uh, a training that he put on LinkedIn with, with some of the other leaders from Microsoft. And one of the things that he talked about was his model of leadership they called model, coach, and care. And it really follows a lot of the same principles that are have in the book on workplace jazz. And that is you have to model as a leader what you want. And so, which means if you want to, again, um, model a great company, you need to also be inspired and be aspirational about what it means, which means you have to go out and find models for yourself. So that you can you can mimic and model what a great leader is. So that's so now you're modeling, but then you start coaching your team 
but because you're modeling it and you're coaching, you give them something to look at and you give them the ability to, to be open to feedback. And the last part of their program is, is, is care, is that you model coach and then you care. When people know that you really care about them, that surpasses the, 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 the critic and really gets down into how do you make people feel? Do they feel encouraged? Do they feel inspired? Do they feel motivated? And if they are, and they're, they're, they are feeling those ways, then they are going to be open to the coaching and open to imitating what you're modeling. So it really does compel the organization, but using that focus of uh, being aspirational as well. On the modeling idea, and I think that's so important, uh, one of the things we have to be aware of is that you can't fake things uh, like positivity and caring and those things. You can't just act like a person who cares. You have to sort of sum it up um, of the things that give you an emotion of caring. Um, And I think, uh, Gerald, you have um, a very positive approach uh, a very, I think, an emotionally supportive, excited, positive approach to project management, which is right. not something that everybody sees. And I'm sure when you're coaching or consulting, you are modeling. But let me ask, how do you stay positive and upbeat and focused on um, what can be? Uh, again, I think it's, for me personally, it is a matter of having the right mentors and coaches in front of me. Because I'm, I'm, I'm human like everyone else and you have your down days and your your challenges and your life ups and downs. Like I said, I had, you know, I went through the vertigo and, and that led to some other things that were some other challenges, but it was a matter of keeping things in perspective. But then also I, I learned about myself that I love learning, but I also realized as a musician, one of the, the, the things that I think I've taken with me since I started playing music at the age of 10 was that if you want to get really good at something, you need a really good coach or teacher. And you need someone that you can look to who's been there and done that. And so in my life, I have a number of mentors and coaches. You know, one is Jack Canfield. Another was Dr. Paul Shealy, uh, who wrote the book uh, Photo Reading and Whole Brain. He talks a lot about whole brain learning. Uh, in fact, I'm in some men- mentoring and, and masterminds with them as well. Um, and so... Uh, and they're they're just two of a number of people that I, I've I've invited into my life or brought into my life that I get on a weekly basis uh, time with through their programs, through virtual programs, through their books and programs and so on that keeps me inspired. And even if I can say I have a day where it's like, you know, I'm not feeling it today, but because I have a program or I have something in my schedule that pulls me up and pulls me out, it really helps. And so I think it's, you kind of have to set your life up where you have built into your schedule times of mentors and models and coaches where people are going to inspire you, even if you find out that right now I'm not feeling that inspired, but by the end of that session, you walk away going, wow, did not think about that one. Okay, let's get going. And also watching inspirational movies uh, helps me a lot as well. 
So if we have listeners out there who are now inspired and who want to be stronger team members and you know find more joy uh, in their work, would you suggest that a good way they might get started today is kind of to look around for a model or a positive uh, picture to aspire to? Sure. And, you know, and quite honestly, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of those in my book. Uh, and that's why I, that's why I included all the stories of the various musicians and also stories of the various business consultants who happen to be musicians. Um, even at the end, I think I, I have uh, I have a, a, a story and I did some research on Hans Zimmer and just about what what's made him such an amazing composer. But I, I think we have to constantly inundate ourselves with positivity and with that type of information on models of, of people who are doing things that we want to do and realize that they had struggles, they had challenges, and they also had mentors and models that helped them to overcome them. And that's how through perpetually um, inundating ourselves with that information, we're able to continually move forward. Well, we're about out of time, but I want to say that Workplace Jazz is the book by Gerald Leonard. And if people are looking for some inspiration and also something that's just a good read, um, it's, it's a great book to help get you started on a good path. Gerald, thank you so much for being with me today. I love talking with you. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Today, we've been talking with Gerald Leonard about how you can help create a strong and supportive team culture. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that if you want to get better at something, the answer is often practice, practice, practice. That means deliberately, consciously doing something again and again, always aiming to do it better. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed today's show, please help spread the word or give us a five-star rating. 